From McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that gets a charge out of discussing science. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is Animal Detection of Electric Fields. Hey, Chad. Hey, Mike. How's it going? It's going well. So I have a feeling we're talking about ants today. <laughs> what gives you that idea? Because <laughs> it's crisscrossing science. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, yes, yes, you are correct. But here's the lead in. Uh, a couple months ago, late August, I got this email in my inbox just out of the blue. And the subject line was ants. And so, of course, that got my attention. <laughs> so you just open it up. <laughs> oh, I know. So exactly. If, if, so any spammers who are listening <laughs> now know how to crack your inbox. Right. And I'll just read the email message. It's short. All right. The email message was, I don't know if this is new, but recently I was using a cheap battery charger and noticed that when it was charging my car battery, the ants were drawn to the charger. I watched ants that were several feet away make a beeline to the battery charger. Again, I don't know if this is something new, but I wanted to share. And so mm. I don't know. I think that's kind of cool. This guy was charging up his battery and Mm-hmm. Notice this weird behavior of these ants and presumably did a Google search and, and somehow came up with my name as a person who studies ants in Oregon. And so he emailed me. And so I emailed him back and I explained a little bit. This is something that I was generally aware of, but hadn't really thought about for a long time and gave him a, a little bit of an answer. And But then it's I've just been sort of thinking about that on and off for the last couple of months and thinking that it would be an interesting thing to chat about because first, the ability to detect an electrical field is something that just seems so weird to an animal like us that doesn't have that ability that one wonders, I mean, what does what is that even like to be able to detect electrical fields and what kind of animals do that how do they go about doing that? I thought it would be an interesting thing to talk about. And All so right. thank you to the person who sent this email for giving me something to think about and kind of the kernel of this idea. Yeah. And by the way, if people have other ideas, they could email us at crisscrossingsci.gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. And we may make a show out of it. Put uh, ants in the subject line and it's a shoe in. <laughs> okay. So where should we start with this then? Well, I guess since I have a physicist here at my disposal... My first question is, how should we think about an electrical field? I mean, what is an electrical field? Is there some tangible way for a non-physicist to understand what that is? Well, so we will often talk about charged particles, you know, and they create forces between other charged particles, basically. And we call that an electric field. What do you mean by a force between a force between particles? Between things that have charges to them. Yeah. So electrons are the main carrier of charges that we will often talk about because it's very easy for Mm -hmm. us to, you know, for instance, if I took a a balloon and I rubbed it in my hair, then I'm going to strip away a few electrons from my hair, I think. And Mm -hmm. so my hair then has fewer electrons than it would normally have to be balanced out. And so now it's charged up Mm. and the balloon will now have more electrons. And so it's also charged up. Okay. Now there's a Van der Graaff generator that sometimes you'll see at museums and things like that, where you put your hand on it, then your hair will stick out. Mm. And basically what that's doing is it's adding extra charges to you. And so each individual hair then has extra charges on them. And each individual hair is then repelled by the other hairs that also have charges on them. 
Okay. And so the electric field is just this phenomenon. And I use electric fields all the time when I'm thinking about batteries and and so forth. Like we had a recent episode about batteries and so forth. Mm -hmm. And it's just how you can push charges around in something. So if you have a charge, you have an electric field just there. It's just an inherent property of it. Okay. Like charges will repel opposite charges will attract. That's all the electric field. Okay. And so when we're coming into like the winter season and many people probably have this experience, especially in the winter, when you're like scuffing your feet on the carpet mm-hmm. and that's sort of similar, right? To what you're talking about, rubbing a balloon on your hair. Yeah. Right. And so you're sort of building up an, some, a static charge or an electric charge. Mm-hmm. And then you go to touch like a metal door handle or something and you get that little zap. And so I pressed the wrong button. <laughs> I was trying to silence my <laughs> my watch because I just got a, a text and ding. And so I was like, oh, God, I, I forgot to silence that. And then I pressed the wrong button, which this other button I press is the find your cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> so then you had to like dig it out of your pocket. No. So then it started dinging over here and... <laughs> And so I'm trying to be quiet and then uh-huh. making a lot more noise. Anyway, I'm sorry. Yeah. Where were no, we? That's okay. So when you when you rub your feet across the carpet and then you touch a door handle or something and you get that little zap and in the dark, you can see that there's actually, there's a little bit of light there too. Yeah. Lightning actually. Lightning. And so are is that like a little column of electrons moving from yep. one thing to another thing? And so these electrons that you were talking about sort of moving from one object to another object being built up and accumulated, that's one way they can get dissipated. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. And okay. and I will actually say that you started out by saying, well, it seems weird that we could detect electric fields, but I mean, we can, like, I, I can actually tell, like, if something is charged up with static electricity, I can, the back of my hand has a little, has hair on it. Mm-hmm. I can actually kind of put my hand up near it and I can, I can sense that there is an electric field there. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So that sort of leads us into how animals detect electric fields. So in general, animals have certain types of neurons called sensory neurons. Okay. And these different kinds of sensory neurons are attuned to different kinds of environmental stimuli. And what you were just describing is making use of your mechanoreceptors. And so the hairs that stand up on your arm or on, on the back of your hand or something, I don't think you are directly detecting the electric field so much as you are detecting the effect of the electric field on your hairs. Right. Yeah. And then the movement of those hairs then sort of causes a little bit of a deformation in the membrane of those mechanoreceptors. And then that particular kind of sensory neuron is stimulated to send a signal when that happens to its membrane when it gets depressed or deformed in a little way, like if a hair bending kind of mm-hmm. presses in on its membrane. And so that that's a little bit different from detecting the electric field directly. Okay. And so as I was thinking about this, my initial thought was, God, this, this just sounds so weird. How is it that certain kinds of sensory neurons would be able to detect the effect of charges at a distance, but and then as I started reviewing some of the different kinds of receptors that do this, I realized that actually it's very, very simple because what all of these different kinds of sensory neurons have in common is that 
something happens to them. And then that kicks off a cascade leading to a change in electric charge on the membrane that is the signal that gets sent down the neuron and to another okay. neuron, to another neuron, and then to the brain eventually where it's interpreted. Right. And all right. So, so let's pause there. So you're saying we've got all these sensory like nerve endings and so forth. Uh-huh. And that is another example of an electric field because mm -hmm. it is electrical impulses that are being sent through our body. If you touch my hand, that's causing the nerves to send an electrical impulse to my brain to say, hey, you're touching my hand. And then right. I can pull it away and be like, Ugh, gross. <laughs> right. But that's not what we're talking. That's not what we want to talk about here. So that is something that is happening. But you're saying that we have all these sensors. You said there's a mechano sensor. Right. So what you just described again with touch, those are mechanoreceptors. Okay. And people listening to our podcast, you and me listening to each other while we talk, our ears have mechanoreceptors inside them, those little tiny hairs inside our cochlea mm -hmm. that vibrate at certain frequencies are attached to a kind of mechanoreceptor. And so mechanoreception is responsible for our senses of touch and our sense of hearing. A different category of receptors are chemoreceptors. So these are stimulated to send action potentials, a signal when certain chemical molecules bind to their surface. Okay. And then that's what kicks off this, this cascade. And so that gives us our sense of smell and taste, for example. Right. And I think perhaps what I should have said a little bit ago is that at rest, when a neuron is just sitting there not doing anything other than being alive, there is actually a charge on its membrane. Okay? okay. So the membrane is not neutral. There is actually a charge, slightly positive on the outside, slightly negative on the inside. Hmm. And so in the case of these chemoreceptors or these mechanoreceptors, what happens is when that particular stimulus is experienced by that neuron, it causes a reversal in that charge on the membrane, and then that travels down the membrane. Mm -hmm. And so I was just trying to rack my brain about, well, what kind of mechanism would translate this incoming electrical field into an action potential on the neuron. And then I realized that actually they're just detecting the electrical field directly. There is no middleman. Huh. If that makes sense, right? So in all of these other kinds of receptors that I'm talking about, like a mechanoreceptor, it's the membrane of the cell itself kind of has to experience something. And then that kicks off this electrical signal. Or in the case of chemoreceptors, the membrane has to bind to something and that kicks off this electrical signal. Uh -huh. But in this particular case, it is the field itself that then kicks off this electrical signal in these sensory neurons. And ah. so it well, ends up being actually much simpler than I originally thought it might be. Okay. The kinds of animals that can do this sort of direct detection of electrical fields are things like sharks and their relatives. Um, okay. If you've ever seen a close-up picture of a shark or a ray or a skate or something, you might have noticed that there are, especially on its face, a whole bunch of tiny little black flecks almost. They almost look like large pores. Okay. And that's actually what they are. They're these tiny little openings called the ampules of Lorenzini. As that you do. And so, so an ampule is like a tiny little vessel and they're shaped like a, a tiny little bulb with a narrow circular canal is what the organ looks like. And so the external part that you see is like the very tippy top end of this little canal. Okay. So it, it's this short little tube 
filled with this jelly-like substance that conducts an electrical field. Okay. And then at the base, the, the bulbous region of this little feature is where the neurons are who, if an electrical field gets close enough to them, are then prompted to propagate an action potential when an electric field gets conducted down that little canal by that gelatinous conductive material. Hmm. And so the snouts of sharks, rays, and skates are covered in these tiny little features. Mm -hmm. And so collectively, they can detect electric fields. Okay. And how do they use that then? Well, yeah, what's the point of that? As you alluded to earlier, neurons and muscle activity are all produced by little electric impulses inside our bodies, mm -hmm. right? So the passing of a nervous impulse to stimulate a muscle to contract, that involves the change in charge along membranes running down our bodies. And that itself generates a small electric field. Hmm. And it's very small. And, you know, again, it's one of those things that we have no concept of what it must be like to be able to detect it. But it's those really small electric fields that these ampules of Lorenzini on the snouts of sharks can detect. Huh. Well, I mean, so, they, so it is possible for us to detect, like sometimes athletes and stuff, they'll put on these pads on their bodies so that they can see like there, there was some infomercial for doing sit-ups or something. And they put on all these pads on people to see if, if you're doing a sit-up, how many muscles are you activating? And, but yeah, it surprises me that like from a distance you can detect that. Yeah. And so if there are good videos that you can find on YouTube of a shark swimming with its snout down a little bit and kind of circling over the bottom of the ocean and then suddenly it'll just sort of like take a bite and it just looks like it's scooping up a, a, a bunch of sediment from the bottom but it turns out that it found a little fish or something that was buried in the sediment hmm. that it would be completely invisible visually because it's completely buried however just the tiniest little bit of muscle contraction in the body of that buried fish puts off this electrical field that hmm. the shark detects and so it knows exactly where it is interesting even though it's yeah it's completely buried all right yeah so there are some other kinds of animals for example the platypus and its relative the echidna these are a couple of very weird very ancient mammals that actually still lay eggs and it turns out that they have distinct but similar in that they function in a fairly similar way. Electric field detectors in their snouts. In the duckbill? In the duckbill. And in the, the echidna has sort of like this really narrow little snouty nose. Hmm. And uh, it probably helps them detect prey in the same kind of way. Some fish, other than sharks, but bony fish, have electric receptors that operate in a very similar way. Okay. Some insects can also detect electric fields, but it appears to me, and you can kind of tell me if I'm thinking about this the right or the wrong way, to be a little bit different from what the sharks and the other fish are doing. There's this research that came out fairly recently about how bumblebees can detect a weak electric field. Hmm. So apparently flowers build up a certain amount of static electric charge on them. Okay. And then when they are pollinated, that dissipates some of that static electric charge. Hmm. And so then a bumblebee kind of flying along, getting close enough to a flower, it can detect 
whether or not that flower has been pollinated because of what the, the researchers called the Coulomb effect. Hmm. And so this fuzzy bumblebee is completely covered in all these hairs. And when it gets close enough, the hairs get sort of like moved a certain way, which the bee can then interpret as something about the status of the flower. And as you were saying earlier, that that seems to be fundamentally different in how to go about detecting an electric field. That seems more similar to what you were saying about how you detect an electrical field. Yeah, that sounds like that the hairs are getting pushed a little bit. It, it turns out another thing about electric fields is that if I had just a sphere, then charges would distribute evenly around the sphere. Mm. But if you have like a little sharp point sticking out of that, they'll collect a little bit more around that sharp point. Mm. And I won't go into why that is. Just know that if you have little sharp points, more charges will collect there. And so that's why, you know, if I put my hand on a Van de Graaff, my hair will stick out because each individual hair is like a little point. So more charges will stick on the ends of those and then they're repelled more and more from each other. And the same thing would happen with a flower that, you know, you got the petals, but also the part that the bee cares about uh, Mm -hmm. are little things sticking out. And so if there's a charge difference, those are going to build up some some extra charge as well. Yeah, so. Oh, that's interesting. And then a bee itself, a, a, a fuzzy bumblebee itself would be like a little sphere with a whole bunch of tiny little points sticking off of it with all those fuzzy hairs, right? Yeah. And so if it gets near one of these, then it would probably move its hair around and it, so it would know. And it, it would also probably know that once you've pollinated it, then you've discharged the flower, you know, that particular petal a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. So then the next bee coming along would be like, oh, Carl already came here. So I'll, I'll move on to the next one. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Okay. And so is that the Coulomb effect then? I mean, Coulomb is a is a word that we use with okay. electric fields. I've never heard Coulomb effect before, but yeah, so oh, okay. that, that is what the Coulomb effect would be. But also, you know, the back of my hand, I would call that probably the Coulomb effect. Okay. So that makes sense. And so I guess that corroborates my hunch that the way animals like sharks detect an electric field is fundamentally different from the way a honey, a bumblebee detects an electric field. The sharks it's through direct detection of the electrical field itself. And in the bumblebee, it's a mechanoreceptor again, because the hair is being sort of pushed apart, pushed away or moved a little bit by the field. But then the neuron associated with that hair is a mechanoreceptor. Yeah. And and, uh, interesting side note for you, my postdoc (laughs) advisor, when she was a postdoc, worked for Bell Labs Mm -hmm. and was part of a project that was, they were at that time, they were laying down cable for, you know, communications and stuff across the Atlantic Ocean. And they had a big problem that they were laying this cable down, which is very expensive to do. And then sharks were going down. They were detecting that electric signal and they just really enjoyed chewing on the wires. And and (laughs) so they had to figure out some, you know, something on there to, to protect it from the sharks. Huh. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. From the shark's perspective, they must have thought, oh my God, this is the hugest, longest <laughs> piece of meat I have ever seen. Yeah. That's cool. So that that kind of brings us back to ants. the the ants, of course. And so I believe the first paper to experimentally characterize this behavior that the um, email writer also noticed was published in 1992. And it's this paper describing an experiment with a number of different ant species where the researchers had a plastic box that was about 10 inches by 15 inches rectangle. Okay, And then they had some sort of circuit with 
a whole bunch of wires going from one side of the box to the other side of the box. But instead of connecting all the way through the box, right down the middle, they were cut, basically. They were not in contact with each other. And instead, on either side of that gap, there was like a little one centimeter circular contact point. Okay. And then those two contact points were separated by a millimeter of space. And so based on the diagram in the paper, my understanding is that the circuit was not closed. Right. Is that because I sent you this diagram to make sure I'm talking about this correctly. So current was not flowing, if I understand how batteries work, because right. so of that one millimeter gap. Right. We would call that a capacitor. So mm. it, it had a bunch of capacitors in there, parallel plate capacitors, if you want to be more specific. <laughs> so if you attach a battery to that, then it'll place charge on there, but there's no current actually jumping across. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so you will have positive charges on one of the, on the top side, let's say and negative charges on the bottom side. And so in between that gap there, there is an electric field because we have charges nearby. Okay. But there's no actual current jumping across okay. the boundary there. Okay, good. So so that's what the apparatus looks like. And so I, I mentioned that there were a whole bunch of wires going from one side of the box to the other side of the box. And what that allowed them to do is they could connect, I suppose, some of those wires and not connect some of the other wires, mm. which then would change the position of where that electric field was inside the box. Yep. So they did that. And then they ran the experiment by putting hundreds of ants into this box, and then they would connect the battery, and then they would select some subset of those connector wires that they would produce the charge in, mm -hmm. and then would keep track of where the ants were inside the box. And it turned out that the ants would accumulate around the contact points that were the ones that were currently energized. Hmm. And then they would turn that one off and then they would wait for a little bit and then they would connect some of the other contact points and then the ants would accumulate around that one. Yeah. And so it was a nice demonstration that they are detecting something about the electrical field and they're attracted to it. And uh, like I said, they tried this on a whole bunch of different ant species, different species that are very distantly related, and okay. they all showed a response. And so it seems to be a behavior that's broadly distributed within the ants. It's still not entirely clear by what mechanism these ants are detecting it, whether they have some sort of direct detector of electric fields, mm -hmm. sort of similar to how sharks do it, or if they are relying on mechanoreceptors associated with hairs that are being deformed as a result of the electric field, mm. more similar to how the bumblebees were doing it. And trying to track this down sort of led me down a rabbit hole. So there's some proposition that they might have these little receptors with magnetite in it. Okay. And many animals that can detect the Earth's magnetic field have these little receptors in their bodies. And so one proposal is that maybe this is sort of like a misallocation or byproduct use of this receptor that is sensitive to Earth's magnetic field. And it's also responding to this electric field sort oh. of erroneously. And so one, one proposal was these little tiny magnetite crystals inside these certain kinds of receptors. Well, that's interesting. So like we made it a point, we were only going to talk about electric fields. 
Mm -hmm. But it is interesting that electric fields and magnetic fields are related to each other, but in Mm -hmm. an interesting way. Okay. And so, I mean, if you're talking about a magnet, like lodestones or or iron that's been magnetized, Mm -hmm. that is a magnetic property. I could have charges nearby near a, a magnet and they won't react to it. And so... In many ways, magnetism and electricity are different. However, uh-huh. if I have current moving, so moving charges, that actually creates a magnetic field as well. And so what's an interesting thing here is that if I have a changing electric field, that will induce a magnetic field. Mm. Or if I have a changing magnetic field, that will induce an electric field. And so they are related by the time derivative <laughs> together. <laughs> but we will go there. And and actually, this is how, for instance, radios work and how we transmit signals with our cell phones and so forth, is that we have a little antenna and we're moving charges up and down that antenna. And so that's giving us a changing electric field. So charges are creating this electric field, but they're going in and out, in and out, in and out of the antenna. And so that changing electric field is inducing a magnetic field that's also changing. Mm. And then that changing magnetic field is inducing a changing electric field. Then that changing electric field is inducing another changing magnetic field. And I could keep going. <laughs> and so that's actually how radio waves and light in general is formed. And so hmm. you may have heard of this term called electromagnetic radiation. Heard of it, yeah. That's basically light, but every wavelength of light is electromagnetic radiation. It's just this interplay between changing electric fields and changing magnetic fields. So all that is to say that, yes, if we had sensors that have magnetite in them that can detect a magnetic field, one would suspect that it could also detect, if there's a changing electric field, that it could detect that. Mm. However, this experiment that you were reading about, they did both AC and DC, mm-hmm. meaning that a DC is you just hook up a battery and it's a constant value right there. There's no change to it. And the AC is going in and out, in and out, in and out. So the AC, I could see that happening. Mm. That, that would make sense, actually, that by having a changing electric field, then, then it is creating a magnetic field and that might attract mm. a magnetic sensor of some sort. Mm-hmm. So that is possible. However, this paper said that they were able to do both. Right. They responded it was both or to changing. DC. Yeah. And, you know, I don't recall them getting into this particular level of detail, perhaps not surprisingly, because these are ant researchers. And <laughs> I don't know if they would know sort of the intimate kind of relationship and how they're distinct but similar that you just talked about. And they might think, oh, they respond to DC and they respond to AC. I guess they respond to both without doing what you just did, which is kind of evaluating whether that makes sense given the type of receptor under consideration. Right. Yeah, so that that's interesting. Yeah, I suppose the last piece here then is to talk about how it is that so many ants will accumulate at a contact point like that. And so a few might detect and be attracted by that electrical field initially, and they'll show up at the contact point. And then they might get zapped if they sort of connect across that contact point, right? Would that okay. allow the current to flow? Yes. And and so if that happens, then they might get fried. And uh. in doing so, they would release a little plume of alarm pheromone, which would then attract other nearby ants to come to that location. Yep. who would then also step across the contact points, releasing more alarm pheromone. And you can see how the signal would fairly quickly amplify until you get a whole bunch of ants just sort of mobbing this contact point that even if they hadn't responded initially to the electric field, they're certainly responding to the alarm pheromone. Uh, I see. 
Right. And so, so, so one way that ants communicate with each other is they they leave pheromones behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's a fun experiment that I've even tried where you can put your finger and kind of mess around, you know, make them follow mm-hmm. different trails and stuff like that. And we've also talked about how I have had a situation where I had a bunch of ants in my freezer and you told me it was probably this situation where the fr- this one ant went in and then was like, <laughs> it's cold in here and then just... <laughs> Shot out a, a warning to everybody else, like, don't come in here. This is terrible. But everybody else was like, ooh, what's going on over there? So then they all followed in and the, it was a mass suicide. <laughs> right. I remember that. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you're saying that what could be happening here. And what are the sizes here again? You said they're separated by the these little the contact points. Yeah. They're a millimeter apart. Okay. And so how big are these ants? Uh, a couple millimeters, two to three millimeters big or, or more. So they could certainly step across it. Ah, okay. Well, so this would be interesting then to redo that experiment and really pay attention to like, if there's a time delay, right? Like as soon as they turn this on, if they're immediately attracted, or if they turn it on, and it just happens that one walks across it, and then they are all attracted at that point, you know, Mm -hmm. that might be one way to discern between that. I wonder if you could insulate the wire itself, so that there's no possibility that the ant could complete the circuit. Does that make sense? That's true. So the only thing that could ever be there is the electric field. It would never be the case that an ant could step across and be touching both wires at the same time and have a current flowing through them, which even if it's a low enough current that it doesn't kill them, probably still gives them at least a a nice little jolt. Yeah. Which would be enough to make them release an alarm pheromone. Yeah. All right. So this paper is basically writing itself. Right. Okay. (laughs) This research proposal is is writing itself right now. (laughs) We may be getting a Nobel Prize here soon. Uh, And you all heard the beginnings of this idea right here. Yeah. Well, so yeah, that that kind of brings us then back full circle to the initial email I received about that battery charger. And I suppose what must have been happening is there were a couple of contact points that were allowing a field to build up Mm -hmm. that was large enough that it could be detected from, I think the writer said a couple feet away, which seems like a long ways to me, but um, it does seem far away. But I could also see this, this last thing that we were just talking about that, like, if one mm-hmm. ant happened to just a short circuit mm-hmm. somewhere in the circuit, mm-hmm. then other ants would immediately charge to try to attack it as well. Mm-hmm. I could see that being a mechanism. Now, is anyway. this... Is this only this one very specific battery charger or has this been found in other places? Well, yeah. So in the South, this is actually a huge problem for consumer electronics and for things like streetlights and other kinds of electronics for traffic control and stuff like that is ants will detect the electric fields and they'll come and they will mob the contact points and they'll short out Hmm. the piece of electric equipment. And so if you're an electrician in the South, I would guess you have to seal up the electronics pretty well so that it's ant proof. And I say in the South because there are things like fire ants that are particularly numerous and seem to really exhibit this behavior. In fact, this paper that I talked about here from 1992, one of the sources of funding was the Texas Department of Transportation. It's clear to me why they'd be interested, right? Because they've got street signs and stuff all over the state being shorted out. And they're like, why are all of these ants coming to these street signs? Hmm. So anyway, uh, I suppose good on the email writer for just watching what's happening with the uh, natural world around them and noticing something peculiar and having the initiative to reach out and make note of it. So yeah, that was cool. Thank you. Very cool. Yeah. 
This episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rody Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have interesting questions or interesting ideas for us to talk about, email us at crisscrossingsci.gmail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Or hit us up on Facebook. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.